America, where money grows on trees and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wearing costumes, wear masks, and ring doorbells and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later to America, and we married the next year. I also assumed, just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then. After years of unresolved marriage problems and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15th, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her of making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bag and laughed. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have come with a knife. It would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me and my last ray of hope, had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher 
for the last time before ending it all with only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister. I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners. Yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called the number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very, very happy. She told me that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has God on her side. <laughs> but I realized that her transformation was not an, only a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know, God also worked on me. So I started to go to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and His Word. It was while studying the Word in my church and in BSF, I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son walked further and further away from God, for my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese-American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. 
At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 year, years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept a secret. I came out of the closet. I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. And to be clear, not all gay men do drugs. Some do, some don't. Just telling my story, not everyone else's story. But I also want to remind us that when you encounter Jesus, he's going to impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. So to support my habit, I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad was a dentist. He knew, the, he knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents should do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mom told the dean, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than a career. But you know, the sad reality is many people in America may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols, the idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And often we are forcing our kids to do the same. Our parents putting more emphasis on their children getting their homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good school, all good things. Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, Upon our kids following Jesus. Nothing is more important than following Christ. But honestly, I was not very happy about my mom's decision. She wasn't on my side, I felt. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. 
So I sent me Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymn. At the bottom of each card, I sign, love you forever, Ma. But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allowed us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused, but I left it on his counter anyway and walked out. We found out later he took my Bible, threw into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. <laughs> Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. She worked literally spent hours inside her prayer closet on her knee, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I was staying in the gap of Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand every day and every day and there I will pray fervently and Lord, just one favor. Don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may. I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede, though it may take years. But I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed 
that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answer to prayer does not come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of my friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So you mothers out there, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. Just imagining the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mom's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation. No braiding words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul doesn't say that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. 
because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator. She tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down this first blessing. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And I passed by this garbage can, and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My dad had two doctorates. I was just three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. Put my head down, and I was about to pass by this garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. And the, for the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. The, but let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the Word of God. And I certainly wasn't thinking this is the answer. I just thought that I've got tons of time on my hands. And I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is a living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pre-sight, and I thought things going to get worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. I was handcuffed, hands were chained around my waist, feet were shackled together. I shuffled into her office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper, slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters, and a symbol. It read HIV positive. It's before Christmas. I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. 
I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with the constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang on the phone, the pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I stumbled up the steps and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet string of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river a after receiving that devastating news. I was in my prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there, and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There is graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. Someone had written something else in the corner, and it read... If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. See, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Judah in exile, in rebellion, he could even have a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my dependencies. The, mo the most obvious was drugs. Within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other, other idols, and there was just this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, my sexuality. I was reading the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. You know, I'm, I'm a brand new Christian. I know very, very little about the Bible. I need to ask someone who studied the Bible, who's gone to cemetery, seminary, the chaplain. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And he even gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for same-sex relationships. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And let me just tell you, from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God and his word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any single verse that might bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at this turning point, a crossroads. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or Abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my desires to control who I am. And live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before God loves me unconditionally. That certainly that's true. 
But as sinners, we sometimes just want to add to God's truth. I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, I used to think, or before I had become a Christian, I had thought if I were to become a Christian, I had to become a heterosexual. And what does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I had even thought the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if a man had opposite sex attractions, he would still need to flee temptations and resist sin. So heterosexuality, right direction, just not the right goal. Because think about this, God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God ever say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Instead, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Thus, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the right goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle and shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I needed to learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, and I told them I think God's calling me to ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an, 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 mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But then, <laughs> but then there was silence on the line because I think they both dropped their phones. They mailed the application into me to prison. I was really excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where I realized I needed references. Not from anybody. These had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison July of 2001, started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> 
I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then back in 2011, I had the great privilege of co-authoring a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote chapter, she wrote uh, the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to just tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal, but the best part is how God has brought us all back together by his power and his grace. This book now is in eight different languages, including Spanish, Korean, Chinese, and um, it's 120,000 copies in print. Many small groups are using it. Kids on college campuses are using it. But we've also found out that Christian schools are using our story, our testimony, as a textbook. How cool is that? Our testimony is now a textbook. But it makes sense. Our kids are being flooded with resources on sexuality. Being here in Rice Lake does not make you immune. You know, the people that hold the main responsibility to teach sex education, it doesn't belong in the hands of the public schools. Amen? Half of you heard that. Let me say that again. The job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of the public schools. Amen? It also doesn't belong in the hands of TikTok. You know who holds the responsibility to teach our children about sex and sexuality? Parents. question is, how are we doing? Parents, you need help. So you know who else has that responsibility? Not just parents, but grandparents. Any grandparents in here by chance? You know why I'm adding you to the list? You have too much time on your hands. <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't. Here's the real reason, grandma, grandpa, Think back when you were teenagers or preteens. How much did you or your peers listen to your parents at that time? Maybe right now, Grandpa, you have more of a listening ear to the grandkids than the parents do. Are we using it? Or are we wasting it? Are we using it? to throw a lifeline to our grandkids or our children that are drowning in a tsunami of lies. This is who I am. My sexuality is who I am. Not, not what you feel or not what the desires you have. That, that certainly is what it is. Or gender, that's how I perceive myself. That's who I am. They're drowning in a tsunami of lies. Are we throwing that lifeline, or are we wasting it? I gave this challenge in rural Oklahoma, and uh, this grandmother made a beeline toward a book table, 
And she, she, she was walking back, and she had a cane, and she had like her hand out. She's like, I need 10 books. <laughs> I'm like, wow. I'm thinking, you just need one. I, I need 10 books. She said, one for myself, nine for every one of my grandchildren. I'm going to mail them. I'm, she said, I ain't taking no chances. I'm going to mail every one of my ki- grandkids a book. I'm going to read it with them, and then I'm going to study it with them. A grandmother who's taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, man, I've got little kids. When is it too early? And that's a good question to think about 10 years ago. It's 2022. The right question to ask in 2022 is not when is it too early. The right question is when is it too late? Let me say that again. The right question to ask is when is it too late? You know, I used to say five, ten years ago, you need to start talking to your kids about sex and sexuality, biblical sexuality, from six to eight. You know what's the age now? Three to five. Especially if they're in public school. Because if the public school is doing it in pre-K, not even like third grade, second grade, it's in pre-K now. I mean, you guys know this. I heard about the school board meetings and stuff. It's pre-K. And we have to help educate our kids on the goodness of biblical sexuality. Because I think for years, we've done little or nothing and forfeited it to the world. I think it's time we take it back. It's time we take it back. Anyone that wants to take it back, any fathers, any grandfathers that says, it's time we take it back. And I know a lot of times you might kind of wonder, you know, what do I say? Well, my book, my, my testimony uh, out of our country, I introduced this concept of holy sexuality, which we talked about yesterday, and I knew I needed to flesh that out, and that's what I wrote my, my, my book, Holy Sexuality. It was named 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine. And essentially, it was helping us to see what is biblical sexuality, because sometimes when we teach biblical sexuality, it goes something like this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And actually, those are important things to teach our kids and, teach, and for us to know But we can't stop there because we can't build a Christian life just on God's no. What is God's yes? God's yes is quite simply chastity in singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. But in the years that my book has come out, I've I've really, my my mom, dad, and I, we've we've been really challenged that This book is good for adults, young adults, college students, but we need something for teens. So I've been for the past year and a half, two years, been adapting my book into a curriculum, and it's actually a video curriculum, a video curriculum for teens and their parents, or actually grandparents and their teens, teen parents and their teens, because most of the resources out there are for churches, youth groups, good. Or for Christian schools, good. But should youth group be the only place or the primary place that biblical sexuality is taught? Yes or no? No. Should be supplemental, secondary, but the primary place needs to be the home. So this resource, this curriculum, it's a video curriculum. It's not going to be print because kids, they love videos. So we're going to use video, high quality with animation, 
um, and we're going to be uh, communicating biblical truth. The goal of this curriculum is to help our youth to understand, embrace, and celebrate biblical sexuality. So you can scan this QR code or you can jot down this, this website, holysexuality.com, and you can put in your email and uh, your name, and then uh, we're hoping that by the end of February, this will be released as a way to stem the tide from the world. Amazingly, God has given us back the, lo- the years that the locusts have taken away. My parents and I, uh, for 20 years, traveled around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor, because he brought me back to Moody, where for 12 years I taught in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> you know... Many of you might not have heard a testimony like mine before, a man who used to identify as gay and now no longer does, and that certainly is true, but that's not how I would summarize my testimony. Can I summarize my testimony for you? It goes like this. I once was blind, and now I see. I once was lost, and now I'm I once did not believe, and now I believe in the Son of God, and his name is Jesus. That's my testimony. You know, you guys might have been wondering why we have this stool here. On July 3rd of this year, my dear father went home to be with the Lord. Very, very sudden. He fainted on July 1st, hit his head really, really hard, and within 24 hours, maybe even 12 hours, he was in a coma. He was very, very healthy, very active. He traveled with me. I travel around 60, 70 times a year, and he traveled with me 40 to 50 times a year at 82. Back in October, he had a heart attack, and he was super healthy, he didn't have high blood pressure, he, didn't, he was taking zero medications, like my mom, I mean, she's 80 years old, isn't that amazing? No medication, and like, low blood pressure, low... Uh, cholesterol, and then she, you know, out of nowhere kind of had this heart attack, took us all by surprise. He bounced back, and I had canceled all my talks for like a month, and he said, do not cancel your talks. He told me to go and preach the gospel. So on July 3rd, when we had, we were at his bed, on his bed, and Brain function stopped and heart essentially stopped. He was just on the machine. The machine was doing all the breathing for him. My mom and I were there, and she looked at me and told me very adamantly, we're going to tell everyone. Dr. Leon Yuan is not dead. He is more alive today than he ever was before. And my dad would want all of you 
to know that you have eternal life. You know, going to church does not save you. Having a godly spouse that brings you to church does not save you. Having parents who bring you to church does not save you. But believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will have eternal life. If you don't have that eternal life, today is the day. Today is the day. Let's pray. If by chance the Spirit of God is working in you, He is speaking to you, and you realize that you have not yet believed, you have not yet put your entire faith to surrender Jesus, you have not confessed with your mouth, believe in your heart, Lord, I, I just say this prayer to the Lord after me. Not that a prayer saves you. You could say it right where you're sitting. You could say it silently or out loud. Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I deserve the consequence, but you sent your son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died in my place, took on my sin and the sin of the world, and then he rose again on the third day, and I believe. I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I believe in the promise that I will have eternal life. Lord, help the rest of us live fully for you that have put our faith in you, God. God, our days are numbered. Help us, Lord, to live fully for you. Help us, Lord, to love you more than life. For it's in the matchless, beautiful name of Jesus we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. God is so good to us, Amen. So a few things I want to say before we send you out. Some of you might right now might be going, whoa. Because you look at your life and you just wonder, could God save someone like me? Absolutely. Turn to Christ. And some of you in this room might be going, Man, God did save someone like me, but how can he use me? I'm a trophy of God. It's time to get out there and let people know his goodness. And there's some of you who are the one in this chair that's been praying and praying. You haven't seen that deliverance yet, that victory yet. Don't give up, amen? 
So I'm going to send you off with this passage here. In fact, in this Bible, this page is almost falling out because I've read it so much. Isaiah 43. Because those who are redeemed by God, we all have that nickname, Trophy of God. Amen? But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For, and in the Hebrew, it's, it's key. It's why? For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, cushions even your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I give men in exchange for you, people, in exchange for your life. The beauty of the cross, amen. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east. I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I form and made. Turn to Christ. He is the one who can save you. I'm going to pray. You guys are dismissed. Christopher and his mom's at the table there. But if you want prayer, Pastor Tony and Michelle will be up here. If you want prayer for your kids, grandkids, they'd love to pray for you. Brent and Gloria, would you be able to be up here and pray? OT and your wife, Barbara, could you come up here and pray? If you want prayer, please come. We'd love to pray for you wherever you're at. God is so good, amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your great love that you would rescue someone as weak and as frail as me. And you do this for the fame of your name. This is all about you today. So Lord, I pray for those in this room who need you. May they cry out to you and call upon your name. I pray for the parents and grandparents who continue to pray. May they not give up. May this be an encouragement to pray and trust you. And those of us who belong to you, we have been rescued. We've been pulled from the kingdom of darkness, brought into your wonderful light. We are your trophies. And we want to be on display for you to this dying world. Use us, we pray, in any way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's thank the Lord for his great goodness.